so much of groundedness is actually about like building a life that you want to live in right now. And those things are often in opposition to striving. Because again, when you're striving, when you're really going towards something, it's very easy to forget about watering you know, the roots, tending to the base, whatever it is. But when you accomplish or you fail to do that thing, well, if you haven't been taking care of all this other stuff, then there's still nothing there. You still feel empty. So you could also argue it's just about like really focusing on what is there right now, what's in front of you. Um, and it's not to say that like you become a Zen monk that's totally content. I would argue that it's still great to strive, but the texture of the striving changes. So instead of striving from a place of compulsion, like I need to win this, and if I don't, I'm a failure, or I need to hit the bestseller list, and I don't, something's wrong, it's much more, this is a great goal, but it's a great goal because all the steps I'm going to have to take to reach it are going to really fulfill me and, and give my life happiness, joy, and growth. What's up, everyone? That was Brad Stolberg. I'm your host, Mario Fraioli, and you are listening to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Every week on this show, I glean insight and inspiration from athletes, coaches, creative professionals, and others through long-form conversations that are a bit different from the ones that you'll hear elsewhere. In addition to the podcast, I publish a weekly newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout, where you'll get my take on what's happening in the world of running, along with a roundup of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to lately. Subscribe today at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe, and you'll start receiving it next week. My guest this week, the first three-time guest in this show's history, in fact, is my good friend and colleague, Brad Stolberg. Brad is an author, speaker, and executive coach who researches, writes, and coaches on human performance, sustainable success, and well-being. His work has appeared in Outside Magazine, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, Wired, and other publications. He's the best-selling author of Peak Performance and The Passion Paradox, both of which he co-wrote with Steve Magnus, and he's got a new book coming out on September 7th called The Practice of Groundedness, which explores the foundation of peak performance, true well-being, and sustainable success. There's more information on the book, including some cool pre-order specials in the show notes to this episode, so be sure to check those out. Brad first appeared on the podcast back in episode 53, where you can learn more about his background and the work he does as a writer, speaker, and coach. And then again on episode 76, which he appeared on alongside Amelia Boone, where we had a roundtable discussion about mental health, eating disorders, OCD, recovery, running and racing, the desire to be relevant, social media and its influence on us, the importance of sharing our stories, and a lot more. That episode, in fact, is the most listened to episode that I've ever published for the podcast, so be sure to check it out if you haven't already. This conversation centers around Brad's new book, and we dive into topics that I think are relevant to many of us. The pursuit of high achievement that seems pervasive in our society today, the fallacy of quote-unquote arriving in life and how that gets the best of so many of us, what Brad calls heroic individualism or an ongoing game of one-upsmanship against ourself and others, the differences between real vulnerability and performative vulnerability, and a lot more. 
This episode is brought to you by Runderwear, the original performance underwear for running. I'll tell you right now, I was anti-running underwear for the longest time until I tried Runderwear. Most running shorts have built-in liners, and you really don't need to wear much else with them. But half tights and long tights and some other pairs of shorts, well, they present a problem without many good solutions. I'm personally a half-tight guy. I wear them for all my speed workouts, long runs, and races. And guess what? Most of them don't have any liners in them at all. That's where Runderwear comes in. Runderwear's running briefs are a game changer, or they've been a game changer for me. They're so comfortable, they're lightweight, they're snug, seamless, and moisture-wicking. The perfect solution to wear under half-tights, shorts that don't have a liner, or maybe they have a poor liner, or long tights. There's absolutely no rubbing or chafing at all. And in addition to the briefs, Runderwear also makes seamless performance running underwear Basewear, bras, and socks that are all incredibly comfortable, all moisture-wicking, and all chafe-free. It's all designed in the UK. Now they have operations and distribution here in the US, and you can pick up some Runderwear for yourself at runderwear.com. That's R-U-N-D-E-R-W-E-A-R.com, and use the code TMS20, that's capital T, capital M, capital S, two zero for 20% off at checkout now through September 15th. That's a great deal, and I promise you that you can't go wrong with adding some underwear to your wardrobe. This episode is also brought to you by my friends at Precision Hydration. I've known PH co-founder Andy Blow for many years, and he was even a guest on the podcast back on episode 117, so check that one out if you haven't already. Andy's own issues with cramping and performance in the heat during his career as a triathlete led him to founding Precision Hydration, and it's a company rooted in education because, quite simply, there isn't a one-size-fits-all approach to hydration as everyone loses a different amount of salt in their sweat. I took a sweat test at a pH testing center where I live here in California, and it turns out that I fall into the average range of salty sweaters at 962 milligrams of sodium per liter of sweat which totally revolutionized how I keep myself hydrated in training and on race day. I've been a devoted user of Precision Hydration products for the past four years, and my last few marathons wouldn't have gone as well without them. If you've ever struggled with hydration issues like cramping, dehydration, or poor performance in the heat in the past, check out precisionhydration.com. There's so much education material on their website, and it's worth visiting for that alone. If you can't get to one of the pH test centers based around the world like I did to get your sweat tested, then you can take their free online sweat test to get a personalized hydration strategy to test in training. You can even book a free 20-minute video call with the team there to ask any questions that you have about hydration and fueling for your next event. And as a listener of the show, you can get 15% off your first order of electrolytes that match how you sweat by using the code TMS15, that's capital T, capital M, capital S, 15, when checking out at precisionhydration.com. Okay, that's it for the introduction. Please enjoy my uninterrupted conversation with my friend and colleague, Brad Stolberg. Brad Stolberg, I think you are the first three-time guest on the Morning Shakeout podcast. It's a pleasure to welcome you back to the show. 
It's an honor to be the first three-time guest. Our conversations are like very, very different from the ones that I usually have for this show because if I have someone on for the first time, I'm getting to know more about them and their background. We've already had that conversation. That was in the first one. I already knew, to be fair, I knew you before that conversation, but my listeners got to learn a little bit more about you. I'll link to that in the show notes. The second conversation we had was me, you, and Amelia Boone talking about very topical subjects, anxiety, mental health, pressure, performance, etc. This is going to be more like that, like a very topical subject because you have a new book coming out. It's called The Practice of Groundedness. It is your third book, first solo venture. And not to pat my own back or take any credit or anything like that, I, I was there like the day, correct me if I'm wrong, that the seed for the book was planted. We were out on a walk in Redwood Regional Park in the East Bay here in California where you lived at the time, you've since moved. And we were talking about some of the ideas that ultimately became this book. And it's super cool to have gotten an advanced copy and to be able to read through a lot of the stuff that we talked about. And I'm super excited to just go deeper into it with you today. Yeah, I'm thrilled to be here. And it does feel like um, a coming full circle moment. So the book, the ideas in the book were there. But you're right, the framing in the metaphor and structure that tied everything together was a result of that hike in Redwood Regional Park. Let's start just by talking about the title of the book, The Practice of Groundedness. And I remember on that walk, we weren't talking about it as book titles. I was like, that that could be like, that feels like rooted, that feels like grounded. It eventually became the practice of, of groundedness. And I want to push you a little bit on this because when I think of a practice, like I think of something that's active and ongoing. Like I practice writing, I practice running, I practice meditation, I practice coaching, etc. Groundedness, like I love the idea and I know what it entails, but it doesn't strike me as a practice. And I'm just curious how you squared that circle. Yeah. Uh, would be happy to to start there. So if you remember our hike, it was a really windy, overcast day. It wasn't storming, but it wasn't necessarily great weather. And these big redwood trees were getting blown around all over the place. And in our conversation, it occurred to me and you that when you look at these trees, what you see is their overstory, so the leaves, the branches, the color, and then perhaps you acknowledge their trunk, especially a big redwood. It's got massive trunks. But what you don't ever think about is the root system, which is actually the thing that holds the tree to the ground during this kind of weather. And the practice of groundedness is really a book about how do you develop and maintain a really strong root system. And why is it a practice? Because much like a tree, if you don't water it, it dies. Those roots don't get the nutrients that they need. So the same holds true for us. Uh, People tend to see our outward achievements, our careers, our families, how we present ourselves in our community. Sometimes they might see and acknowledge the trunk, which is how we stand really tall and strong and be resilient when things aren't going great. But this book is actually about all the stuff that people don't see 
that is what allows you to, as a person, weather various storms. Whether those are really good storms, so you know, stress isn't just negative. It could be um, a huge career change. It could be winning a gold medal, getting married. Those positive, excited storms, and also, of course, the negative storms: a global pandemic, um, individual illness, decline. So that's why I called it the practice. Each element of groundedness that I explore in the book, they're not switches that you can turn on or off. They are things that are only as strong as you practice them. That analogy is in the book, Mario, right? Like they are roots and you have to water the roots. And if you don't water them, then they start to become fragile and break down. To dig a little deeper into the the origins of the book, something you've told me many times in the past is that you don't write books or articles because you've figured things out. You write them to figure things out. They're things that you're struggling with. And I'm really curious, what events or things that were happening in your life led you to explore this idea of groundedness further and start putting the pieces of the book together that ultimately ended up in this volume that is coming out very shortly? Yeah, it, two big things. The first is very personal. The second is um, more outward or other focused. So the first is I got really sick with obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD, and secondary depression um, each, about five years ago now, five and a half years ago. And that completely shook the ground from underneath me and made me realize that I hadn't been devoting enough time to my metaphorical root system. Um, so I, as I got through recovery from that, became really keen on, hey, like, you know, some of this is just poor luck. It's a, a mental illness, OCD, depression. These things are a mix of genetics, environment, um, all sorts of things. So it, you can't attribute it to any one thing, but it certainly made me step back and evaluate, like, hey, you know, how could I prevent this from happening? What could I have done differently? And then the more other focused thing that I mentioned is in my performance and executive coaching practice, so many of my clients that seemed very conventionally successful were actually really struggling with not being able to find contentment, feeling like they weren't fulfilled, um, feeling a sense of restlessness. Something very common that I heard is, if I try to turn it off, I get really anxious because I'm not doing something, but I also dread doing something. So just kind of feeling stuck. And a mix of my own personal experience, which was quite extreme at the time, what I was hearing from coaching clients that varied from extreme to more just day-to-day, I feel unsettled, I feel unmoored, led me to this, uh, th- this overarching framework of what's the foundation. And then I guess the third thing is if you think about the other two books that I've written, both co-authored with Steve Magnus, the first is Peak Performance, which is... Um, a phenomenal book about what to do when you're at the top of the mountain. So everything is clicking. How do you sustain that level of performance? The second book, The Passion Paradox, is about the climb up the mountain. So how do you harness motivation? How do you build motivation? And then the real meat of that book is how do you channel it in productive ways? What I had neglected in my writing, and perhaps in my own life, and what so many of my coaching clients had neglected was the foundation, like the base of the mountain, the roots of the tree. And I think I had to write the books in reverse because 
that's just how it went down. But this ought to be the first book of the three that anyone reads because this book is really about the foundation. And all of that other stuff works some of the time, but if you don't have the strong base, the strong foundation, the strong root system, then, as I mentioned, it's very fragile. What are the differences in that foundation and in that root system versus the principles and practices that you put forth in peak performance. Because I read that book as well, and even Passion Paradox, I would say, because there's a lot of overlap between the three books. And I feel like a lot of the principles that you discuss within the three books are very similar and consistent, which is great. They're all supposed to lead you to the same place. Like you want to perform optimally, but you want it to be sustainable and you want to have other areas of enrichment and fulfillment in your life, but I'm curious, like what's different about groundedness versus what you wrote about in Peak Performance and Passion Paradox? So there are a couple of principles that are just new and I haven't written about before. So this notion of accepting where you are to get where you want to go and really seeing your reality clearly, um, which allows you then to start where you are, right? Not where you think you should be, not where other people think you should be not where you wish you were, but to start where you are. And the culture that we all live in really tries to make that hard, right? It is a culture of magical thinking, delusion, positive thinking. You are upset with the situation, so it tells you to buy stuff or to tweet or to numb it with substances. So that's brand new, and that's the first principle, because if you don't start where you are, it doesn't matter what you do, you're never going to get anywhere because you're not actually working on the thing that you need to be working on, the thing that's in front of you. The principle of vulnerability and how that relates to genuine strength and confidence, that is missing from my other two books. And I think is, again, one of these foundational principles or practices. Because it's really easy to lie to other people and even to lie to yourself and to kind of fake it. But if you haven't gone to those vulnerable spots and explored those weaknesses and confronted them, they're eventually going to bubble up and rise to the surface. Patience was a small part of my other books, but not a foundational theme. And again, the culture says that you should move really fast, right? What is it? Move fast and break things. Uh, overnight success, a hack. And what this book says is actually, no, 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 Like everything takes time. And if you don't cultivate patience, you're going to be restless, you're going to make yourself crazy. Um, deep community, again, a small part of the other books, but this doesn't say community for performance, this says community to keep you situated. Because if you don't have that, then the highs, you don't have gravity to bring you back down, and the lows, you don't have a safety net or something to hold you up. So I would actually argue that it's, it's pretty different than those other books. Um, and then the other thing that I'd say is just the, like, the texture of how all this stuff is applied changes. When you are doing well, when you're climbing, when you're at the peak, it's just all about how do I maintain this rhythm? And I think that's very different than thinking about, well, how do I always make sure that I nurture this base? Um, another metaphor, I know I've used the tree and mountain, is one for this audience, which is training and running. So the best running coaches that I know, yourself included, have always told me that you can emphasize something, but you never want to leave other stuff behind. And I think these are the principles that so often get left behind 
when we're like pushing for greatness or pushing for achievement. And what this book says is, once you build them and they're solid, they might not be the focus, but you can't leave these things behind. And I would argue that these are the principles that get left behind first when you do get so focused on peak performance or on motivation. Mm Because think about it, when you're crushing it and you're optimizing and you're being efficient, well, are you making time to build deep community? Probably not. Are you in a very patient, letting things happen mindset? Probably not. If something goes wrong, do you really want to accept it and see it for what it is, or do you want to just keep going and immediately problem solve? Probably the latter. And you're not in a vulnerable place then. Uh, so that's how I think it's different. It's more than you asked for. It's a long-winded answer. No, I, I appreciate that. And playing off it, I want to rewind to your own situation that you described a little while ago when you were in the worst stages of your OCD and depression. How did you come to discover these principles and put them into practice in your own life so that you could be more grounded? So it would be a total lie to say I was writing this book while I was like deep in the throes of darkness. Um, That wasn't the case at all. When I was really sick, I most if not all of my energy was devoted just towards like getting better. So I was in therapy and working on all those things that, that go with being in therapy. It was after I had gotten kind of out of the woods, which was probably about nine to ten months after my diagnosis, that I had the space to intellectualize what happened and intellectualize some of the things that I learned. And what I realized are that so many of the practices that I learned in my therapy, which was rooted in cognitive behavioral therapy and something called acceptance and commitment, were exactly what all of these ancient wisdom traditions that are millennia old taught. So you could say that these two therapies, cognitive behavioral therapy, acceptance and commitment, are really just like sciencing the shit out of Buddhism, Stoicism, Taoism, and elements of more spiritual Christianity and Judaism from the first, you know, hundred years AD. So you know, my whole thing in writing is I want to search for truth with a capital T. And I get to that if I say, hey, modern science supports it, check. History, ancient wisdom supports it, check. And out in the real world, it actually has a noticeable difference on people, check. And there's this beautiful set of principles that, unfortunately, so many people have to get really sick to learn that while they're applicable in extremes, they're applicable to everyone always, and perhaps they even prevent you from going to that extreme. So um, that's when it hit me that, A, for myself, I need to be practicing these principles regularly, just as a part of, like, not even mental health, just sound well-being, and B, I want to explore more, I want to see the genesis of them, I really want to dive into the research, I want to explore how others have wrestled with these ideas and practiced these principles, and if there's a there there, I want to write a book. And it just so happened that not only was there a there there, but as we discussed on that hike, everything coalesced at a time, and this is before COVID, when there was a lot of burnout. People were feeling, again, very restless and exhausted, like a sense of languishing. And then COVID happened, and it just fast-tracked all of that. So 
I mean, it's very unfortunate for society, and I would trade anything for COVID to go away. I want my kid to be able to go to school safely. And ironic, I don't want to use the word fortunate for the book, that so many people are now in this situation where they're like, how do I want to be spending my time and energy? What does it mean to be resilient? How do I deal with anxiety about being a human? Um, and then you have the Olympics, and, and particularly in the athletic realm. What does it mean to quote-unquote fail? What happens after the big race, whether I win or lose? So some of these topics that are, again, not top-of-the-mountain topics, not climb topics, but really like foundational, essential topics um, are on a lot of people's minds right now. What do you think is fueling this pursuit of high achievement in society? Um, I'd say consumer capitalism. I don't want to say capitalism because I don't know enough about economic systems to just say it's you know capitalism. I think that there's a lot that's wrong with it and a lot that's right with it. I mean, look at these vaccines. It's hard to imagine that they would have happened so fast otherwise. But consumer capitalism that is all about buying stuff to make you feel a certain sort of way, I think is ultimately what's fueling this. So think about every commercial whether it's for dishwasher detergent, cat litter, you name it, let alone like a fancy watch or a nice car or a pair of headphones. Everybody looks beautiful. Everyone is smiling. The message is if you just get this thing, then you'll be happy. Then you'll be fulfilled. Then you'll be content. If you just get this promotion, then you'll be happy. Then you'll be fulfilled. Then you'll be content. If you just run under three hours or qualify for the trials or whatever it is, then you'll be content. And that's bullshit. And we know this is true. Um, 2,000 years ago in Buddhism and, and Stoicism and Taoism, they are entire traditions based on like suffering that comes from striving for something that is an illusion. And more modern science calls this the arrival fallacy. Freaking love this term. The arrival fallacy is just that. If you think you're ever going to arrive, then you're in for a rude awakening. Because whatever goal you have you never actually arrive. And the whole society is telling you, if you just do this, then you'll arrive. But that's a fallacy. We know this thanks to empirical modern research and age-old wisdom. And the experience of people. I mean, like this is the post-marathon blues, the post-Olympic depression, the post-honeymoon letdown, the person that works their ass off to become you know, a C-level executive at a company and then a week later is depressed because they still put their pants on the same way. It's our mutual friend Ryan Holiday dying to have a number one New York Times bestselling book and two days after it happens feeling completely empty. Um, it's very pervasive. Do you think it's solvable? I don't think it's solvable, but I do think that being aware of it and then again, practicing the principles of groundedness helps you stay grounded. So instead of completely kind of throwing you off kilter, you can stay steady and stable. And so much of groundedness is actually about like building a life that you want to live in right now. And those things are often in opposition to striving. Because again, when you're striving, when you're really going towards something, it's very easy to forget about watering you know, the roots, tending to the base, whatever it is. But when you accomplish or you fail to do that thing, well, if you haven't been taking care of all this other stuff, then there's still nothing there. You still feel empty. So you could also argue it's just about like really 
focusing on what is there right now, what's in front of you. Um, and it's not to say that like you become a Zen monk that's totally content. I would argue that it's still great to strive, but the texture of the striving changes. So instead of striving from a place of compulsion, like I need to win this, and if I don't, I'm a failure, or I need to hit the bestseller list, and I don't, something's wrong, it's much more, this is a great goal, but it's a great goal because all the steps I'm going to have to take to reach it are going to really fulfill me and, and give my life happiness, joy, and growth. How do you respond to the folks, whether they're athletes, whether they're executives, artists, whoever, that say, well, if I weren't constantly trying to better what I just did, then I would never be as accomplished as I am or I would never accomplish anything in general? Yeah, I would say that there's two ways to strive for greatness and accomplishment. And one is from a place of like fear or compulsion, which is this sense of tightness, narrowness, I have to get somewhere. The other is from a place of openness, joy, or love, which is I'm actually okay with where I am. I've cultivated a life that I enjoy living in. I have a healthy relationship with my pursuit, and I can let my shoulders down. And I do this exercise with all of my executive coaching clients. Um, when I was consulting with your wife, Christine, who had a phenomenal podcast appearance recently, I did this exercise with her. And I tell people to think about a big goal. Hope Christine's okay with this. In her case, it was to compete really well in triathlon. And then tell me where that motivation is born out of. And for most people, it is a sense of, well, I just got to do this. And like, then my identity will be complete or then I'll feel good. You know, it's that if then. And what do people do? I see them in person or in COVID times on the screen. They clench up, they raise their shoulders, and they get really tight. Their facial muscles get tight. And then I say, okay, now imagine that you're okay right now. You're enough right now. You're as ready as you're going to be. And whatever happens, happens. But like, you should still love yourself. I still love you. Your community is still there. Shoulders go down, face relax. And then I say, what's a better way to feel on the start line? Or what's a better way to feel before a workout? And just about everybody says that relaxed space. Some people need that fear or that compulsion or that narrowness and tightness to drive them, but it's a minority. And I think so many people don't realize that, hey, it's this paradox that once you accept that you're good enough right now, that's actually the key to being better because you drop the weight or the pressure of feeling like you have to achieve something. So this isn't about not striving, but it's about not being so fixated on needing to accomplish something and instead cultivating a strong enough base and foundation that you're okay where you are, wherever you are, and it allows you to focus on the process more. Um, I know athletes talk about process over outcome, that's a big part of this book, right? Like, the more that you can be in the process, enjoying the process, the less that the outcome matters. One of my favorite lines of the book is it's like, listen, we're ultimately all going to the same finish line. And like, that's the only finish line we're really going to, which is death. So, all these other finish lines, you better find a way to enjoy the process of striving towards them because they don't really change much. I mean, maybe at most you get a high for like a month of accomplishing something. And then that's going to fade away. But if you cultivate good stuff right now in front of you, then that's forever. And that's your whole life. To use a running metaphor, I mean, they're not really even finish lines. They're more mile markers than 
anything else because once you pass them, and we do pass them most of the time until not to get morbid that day that we do die, it's on to the next one. And in order to keep racking up those mile markers, so to speak, or getting that like ultra marathon mindset, you can only really focus on the mile that you're in and not get so far ahead of yourself because I've seen this with athletes that I coached happened to me as an athlete myself. When I do that, when I start thinking too far ahead or, you know, getting consumed with the idea of how's it going to feel once I, you know, get to this point or cross this finish line, things start to fall apart. I mean, it's like nine out of 10 times. That's what happens. And there's, and again, back to this theme of like, why is groundedness so important is it's easier to be where you are when you've developed solid ground. If you're on shaky ground, you're constantly like grabbing the next rung of the ladder for these like little hits of achievement of dopamine because there's no actual foundation. But if the foundation is strong, you can really go for it, again, from a place of freedom, more woo-woo, from a place of love, from openness, flow, whatever it is, because you know that, like, hey, I've already got this foundation, so now like I'm playing with the house's money. And I think so many people feel this compulsion to achieve, be it in sport or not, because they don't have that solid foundation. So they're getting all their perceived fulfillment from achieving stuff, but you know uh, they're looking for love in all the wrong places. And it sounds woo-woo, so you can say they're looking for fulfillment or contentment or joy in all the wrong places. One thing I just thought of is you were saying that was this this compulsion for achievement and so and how widespread it is right now and you talked about consumer capitalism earlier and i think about the internet and our online lives and social media and i quit almost exactly a year ago instagram and twitter now because i had an unhealthy relationship with those platforms and this is purely empirical, but I've got to think that social media has really served as an accelerant for this type of attitude because we see other people who are always getting after it and they knock off a fast marathon and then they knock off a faster marathon a couple months later and you can see that. And if you're not doing those things, and I'm just using the marathon as as one example, you start to feel really bad. Uh, And that can lead you know, even if you're not on that that same path, like that can lead to not feeling like you're enough and getting depressed about your own situation and that you don't belong. And I I think that's more pervasive than more people want to admit. Yes. Resounding yes. Um, a long time ago, Eric Fromm, um, who is a psychoanalyst, sociologist, psychologist, philosopher, he's really a polymath of the mid-1900s, he wrote about something called the marketing personality, mm-hmm. where he basically said that your personality becomes put on a marketplace, and everything about your life is about selling yourself. And I updated that for the 21st century, and now it's like your online brand or personality. And the more that you feel the need to post or to get that feedback, well, then everything in your life becomes work because you're the brand. Retweets, likes, comments mm-hmm. are the revenue. And if you don't get them, then you have to try harder to get them. Well, of course you're restless and anxious all the time because your entire life has become work. Your identity has become work. 
And I agree, it's very unhealthy. I think that um, certain social media platforms are worse for this than others. And I do think that there is a somewhat healthy way to use social media as an individual. I'm not positive there's a healthy way for society to have social media, though. Do you think that's only going to further contribute to an erosion of some of the pillars of society if it becomes more pervasive and you have more people who are literally living their yes. entire lives online? Yeah, because this, I mean, we know about this. The stuff that sells online is provocative, it's clickbait, it's if it bleeds, it leads, except now you've got no fact checkers and everything bleeds all the time. Um, so the, the, the principle of groundedness that is be present to own your energy and attention also set up is deep presence over constant novelty and stimulation. A huge part of that, because when the rubber meets the road and we get away from esoteric, you know, philosophical concepts, that is about figuring out, well, what is the constant novelty that takes you away from what you want to do and how can you get that out of your life? Um, I still have a Twitter account. People that are listening probably won't be thrilled to hear this. I schedule most of my tweets, so I'm not like actually there behind the keyboard. Um, I'll come on to respond to people because I've gotten lucky. Still, most of the time, it's actually pretty good dialogue on my Twitter feed. But I don't have Instagram. I don't have TikTok. I don't have Snapchat. I'm sure there are other platforms I don't even know about. And the reason isn't because like there's anything inherently wrong. It's because, to your point, if I had that, there'd be too much candy in my life. Um, an analogy I use in the book is brown rice versus candy. So brown rice in candy on a table. Let's say peanut M&M's, really good candy. What are you going to pick up to eat? Every single time you're going to pick up peanut M&M's. The first bite of peanut M&M's takes great. Ten minutes later, you might still be eating peanut M&M's. One day later, one week later, one month later, one year later, if you've just been eating the M&M's, you're going to feel sick. And so much of social media are peanut M&M's. And the brown rice is working on your writing project, going out and training, having an intimate conversation with your romantic partner or a close friend, uh, listening to music, reading a book. Well, those things all take a lot longer to get into, but after a day, a week, a year, those are the things that make you feel good. So, so much of being present is actually about figuring out ways to help you choose the brown rice knowing that peanut M&M's always taste better, but if you eat too many peanut M&M's, you feel like shit. And I think so much is uh, of the internet in particular, it's just candy. Let's dig into your relationship with Twitter for a minute. How has it evolved in the time that you've been on the platform? Because over the past few years, your own presence on the internet and the world in general, through your writing, the articles that you're doing for outside and other places, and certainly your books and now everything you and Steve are doing with the growth equation has exploded. I mean, you're fairly well known in a few different worlds, the athletic realm, the business realm, the coaching realm, and a lot of your messaging gets out through Twitter. You just mentioned how you schedule a lot of your tweets. You and I have talked about this offline, but I also know that you've had moments where you do get sucked in and you found yourself in a spat with someone over something that you've tweeted or how they responded and you you get, you know, you're just immersed in the in the bowl of M&Ms. You can't stop 
popping M&Ms at, at that point. Like, how have you been able to just change your relationship with the platform and take a more brown rice, healthy approach toward using Twitter, given that it's a very integral part of how you get your messaging out? And I hate to say grow your brand, but sell books as well. Yeah, so three things. The first is the the reason I'm on Twitter is because I want people to read my books. I think that my books are my best work. I think they genuinely help people. And I like put my heart and soul in my books. So if I didn't have books, I wouldn't be on Twitter. And a lot of people are on Twitter, and particularly people that read. That's why I'm not on Instagram, tend to gravitate towards Twitter. So the reason I'm there is to sell books. And I'm constantly evaluating, is the cost of being on social media worth the benefit of helping me sell books? So then the second two points are, how do I try to minimize that cost? One way is to have really clear boundaries around how and when I use social media. So I've taken it completely off my phone. So now it is a part of work because I can only get it through my computer. And my computer is in a home office. So social media is a part of my job. I do it when I'm working. At night, I leave my laptop in the home office. The second thing is to fail, as you mentioned, and I do sometimes. And when I fail, I try to pay really close attention to what I'm feeling in the moment and what I feel after. And what I'm feeling in the moment masquerades is excitement, but it's actually often anxiety or restlessness. It's that same kind of tightness, shoulders going up, facial muscles scrunching. It's like, I got to do this. I got to respond to this person. I got to get my point across. And then after, what do I feel is empty. So when I fail, the closer I can pay attention to that, the better chance I have the next time I'm heading down one of those paths to realize like, ooh, like I'm, I'm back in that warp and I'm going to feel like crap after so it empowers me to have a chance, I don't always win this game, but to have a chance at turning it off. And based on those three things, being really intentional about why I'm there, cost-benefit, making it a part of work, and then when I do mess up, because I'm a human, it's a laptop, sometimes I bring the laptop in the house when I'm not working. So I can go on Twitter and argue with someone about why I think Joe Rogan has a bad influence on health and performance. In those moments, pay really close attention. Um, and those three things over the last two years have, have completely changed my relationship with social media. There would be times when like, my mood at the end of the day might be determined, not every day certainly, but more days than I want to admit, by like, something that happened on social media, and that doesn't happen anymore. What advice do you have for folks listening to this who don't use social media for work? They go on there to get their news, Maybe they're having a conversation with someone out in the internet world. They are entertained by things that they find on social media, and they still just struggle with using it and how it makes them feel and the role that it plays in their life. I'd say two things. The first is get more intentional about how and when you use it. So the, the easiest, best thing you can do is take this stuff off your phone because not only does it make it harder to actually log on and use it, but you get to be bored again. When you're in line at a grocery store, um, when you're on a walk and you reach for your phone because you have an urge to check on social media, you can't. And I was a junkie, so I had to take the internet off my phone too because I would like log in through the internet. So I wiped all that stuff off my phone. I went ahead and took email off too. I'm, I'm not going to tell anyone to do that, but that's what worked for me. And then the second thing 
is to be real honest about, hey, like, what am I getting from this and what's the cost? And how much of my identity is rooted in what happens on social media? And be really honest. And if it's a lot, then it might be really hard to scale back because it's, you're, you're so intimately connected to it, but that's often the most important time to scale back. So it's like any other addiction or dependence. It's really, really hard at first, but over time it gets easier. And particularly if you replace the time and energy that you were on social media with actual things that are brown rice that nourish you, that give your life meaning. So again, like I've never met anybody that regrets picking up a good book with a glass of coffee or a glass of bourbon or iced tea, whatever it is, and sitting on a couch for two hours and getting into the book and reading it versus being on Twitter. In the history of people I've asked this question, no one has ever said that they regretted that decision. Everyone says it's really hard. So many people tell me I forgot how to read. I'm like, well, you didn't forget how to read. What you forgot how to do is pay attention for 15 mm-hmm. minutes and give yourself time to groove into a book. Yeah, I mean, that's where I found myself about a year ago. I mean, aside from being addicted to various aspects of social media, my attention took a huge hit. I couldn't focus on something for more than like a minute at a time. And that's like no word of hyperbole at all. I mean, I could focus on something for a minute and then I would be completely distracted, which makes reading that book really hard and not so enjoyable. So what do you do? You go back to... Bingo. the th- you go back to the thing that that is easy and that feels good and you get caught in that cycle. And and for me, I tried so many different things that I just had to cut the cord completely. We had long conversations about this, about strategies that I could use and what impact it might have on, you know, what it is that I do professionally. But I know myself and I know how hard I tried. And I was like, for me, it's very binary. It's got to be off or on. And yeah. if I'm, if I'm on, I cannot take myself out of it. Um, and cutting that cord was was really challenging. I mean, I definitely experienced some feelings of withdrawal and, you know, maybe minor depression because you, until you're away from whatever it is that you're addicted to, you don't realize how powerful of a hold that it can have. Yeah. And something that I talk about in, in the same chapter on presence is for you, the cut the cord worked really well. For a lot of people, it's just too hard or it feels too extreme. Mm-hmm. So I like to think about taking like a bottom-up approach, which means just start with three days a week scheduling one hour of time for a brown rice activity. Reading a book, writing, um, having sex with your, your partner, like all the shit that gets crowded out because you're on social media or you're distracted. And in those, that all it is is one hour. Anyone can do one hour three days a week. And then see how you feel after. And if you feel good, then it'll take care of itself. Because the next week you'll do four by one hour or four mm-hmm. by an hour and a half. And like brown rice and M&Ms, once you start eating enough brown rice, it becomes a lifestyle. And you either don't want the M&Ms or because you know how they make you feel, you'll go over to the fridge, you'll pop two or three in your mouth, and that's it. Yeah, get on with your day. So it's a it's a bottom up approach works so much better because to for so many people to be like, oh, my whole life is now going to be about presence and intention and flow and being in the moment and productive activity, that's really hard. But to start the opposite and just slate in times to do brown rice activities and to pay attention to how that makes you feel is much more sustainable for a lot of people. Switching gears a bit, we spent some time earlier talking about achievement and 
this constant one-upmanship with ourselves and those around us. You've labeled this. You call it heroic individualism. And we've talked about this in the past ad, ad nauseum, but we've never really got to a resolution. I, I, I see that term heroic individualism on its own, and it doesn't really mean anything to me. And I start to understand it more once I dig into it. But for someone who is just picking up your book and they see that on the back cover and they're like, what is heroic individualism? I'm just curious how you landed on that and if we can deconstruct it a little bit. So the definition is an ongoing game of one-upsmanship, as you mentioned, against self and others, where measurable achievement is the main arbiter of success and you think that there's a finish line. The reason that it is heroic is because you feel like you have to kind of like constantly be bulletproof and be great, what 99.999% of self-help books tell you you should be. Bullshit. And the reason individualism is because what happens is you get so caught up in pushing that time gets crowded out for other people and other activities. So it becomes kind of isolating and lonely. So you put those two things together and you're a heroic individual. And I think so many people are walking around suffering from like this syndrome of heroic individualism. And the common symptoms that I hear are, and some of these I've mentioned earlier, restlessness, desperately wanting to turn it off but feeling anxious when you do, feeling like you're never enough, feeling lonely even though you're more connected than ever, um, not being able to pay close attention, feeling like something's missing, um, really wanting to get somewhere, but every time you get to that point, it doesn't satisfy you. Um, again, because like we're 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 shooting for like the peak without any foundation, so like we're constantly on wobbly ground. In your coaching practice, and we're not going to talk about individuals, but is there a reluctance to accept that? that people are that way and that they do fall victim to these things? There is. I'm being totally honest with everything on this podcast, so I'll continue here. I think there's a lot of selection bias in Mm -hmm. clients that come to work with me because I've written about these topics quite a bit and spoken about them. I think a lot of people that come to work with me are willing to accept that they're caught up in this cycle and they don't judge themselves and they know I'm not going to judge them. So I don't struggle to change minds on this very frequently. I definitely struggle to change like behaviors and patterns. Um, but I don't see a lot of resistance to it. What I'm hoping that the book does, in particular this language, heroic individualism, is it gives people a language for something that they might be feeling. And then they can say, oh yeah, like I am suffering from this. Or groundedness, like this is what I want to practice. This is how I want to feel. Um, when I shared the book with Ariana Huffington, who I've gotten to know just a little bit through various writing activities, she's like, "Oh yeah, like you've just given us a language for things that we feel, but we can't express, we can't talk about." So I think what heroic individualism does for a lot of my clients is they they see themselves in it, but they have no idea what to say because it's not depression, it's not burnout, it's not anxiety. It's not true like isolation. It's more of this syndrome um, that leads to like those kind of things secondarily. Um, so I don't know if that answered your question, but yeah, that, that's what I'm trying to do with it. And we can all be heroic individuals at time. 
And it's just realizing when, hey, too much of my time and energy is going, you know, in this direction, and I need to get back to to focusing on the foundation a bit because I'll be happier that way. Um, it's so crazy, right? Like I go back to all these principles. So the defaults and heroic individualism, for sure, is magical thinking, delusion, numb stuff that's bad, hacks, quick fix, rush, overnight success, no time in between meetings. Um, distraction, novelty, confidence, bulletproof, uh, optimization, efficiency, which crowds out community. And that stuff is so easy to fall into, but if you think about what makes for contentment, fulfillment, strength, resilience, based on all the modern science, based on every ancient wisdom tradition... In the experience of people that are able to cultivate in this, this stuff in their life, it's the total opposite. It's acceptance, presence, patience, vulnerability, community. Um, you getting off social media is like the perfect example, right? You were caught up in novelty, speed, um, maybe overconfidence because there's a lot of performative vulnerability on social media, but not a lot of the real thing. You get off, it feels empty because it was clearly like filling a hole for you. And then over time, you actually start to be more patient and to be more present and to do more brown rice and to have more conversations that are really vulnerable to put more energy into your podcast. And as a result, you don't have these followers, but you probably feel a lot better. And we've talked about this. For you, from a business standpoint, the trade-off is worth it um, because you've got a really successful newsletter. You've got all these people regularly listening to your podcast. You don't need to be there. One thing you just said that I want to dig into a little bit with you is this idea of vulnerability. What is the difference between performative vulnerability, which you just described, and actual real vulnerability? Yeah, so I think it's very much a motivation thing. So if you go to post something that is quote-unquote vulnerable because you want to like get a bunch of retweets, clicks, and likes, and it's going to make you feel good, that's performative. If you share something that's really hard and uncomfortable to share and you don't really want to share it, that's real vulnerability. I think that's the easiest way to separate the two. I mean, this goes back to what I was saying earlier about people living their lives on social media. They don't really know how to be vulnerable if they can't express it through Instagram or Twitter or whatever platform it is that they spend a lot of their time on. And that just, I mean, like thinking about that just really worries me because I feel like it's a bigger challenge than ever for people to understand, like, that's not real vulnerability. That's actually searching for that dopamine hit of, of getting the like or getting someone to respond and say, I'm so sorry that you feel that way. I'm here for you, et cetera, et cetera. There's probably also some benefit to that too. People mm-hmm. need help and they want someone to reach out to them and let them know that they're being thought about. But I, I still just have a real hard time with it all, I guess. I don't, I don't know. There's no question there. But when, when I hear you describe that, I'm like, yeah, I, I get that. Like, that's, that's absolutely true. But I think there is just a, a real misunderstanding of what real vulnerability is and that by being vulnerable in a public way, it might help someone out, it might help you out, but it can, even though it doesn't seem like it in the moment, hurt you even more. 
I think it's both and. And I, again, I think it comes down to the motivation. So I've written essays about my experience with OCD and depression that were out in the public. And I did not necessarily want to write those. I didn't want to publish them. Like There was nothing about those that were like, oh, hey, this is going to land me a bunch of followers. If anything, I was freaking out because it's like, oh, like, is it going to come back to get me because now I'm asserting control over it? little bit of what are people going to think of me, but a lot, like, I'm not on the other side of this. How dare I, like, post anything about it? My therapist is like, go do it, because, like, that's real vulnerability. Like, you're freaking scared. You're going to a scary place. That is so different than, like, crafting something because you think it's going to hit on people's emotional buttons, and therefore they'll follow you or they'll give you, like, help or whatever, you know, it is. Um, and I think the latter can be really tough, because it cannibalizes the skill and ability to do the real thing, I think the former can be really helpful. Um, so I think it's a mixed bag there. How do you discern between the two? Well, you can't as the commenter, but again, as the and, and I don't really care so much as the commenter, and if someone posts something like that and they're a friend, I pick up the phone and call them, and if they're not, I don't do anything about it because why should I be in their life? I'm not their close friend. Um... And I don't, yeah, I, I don't try. I guess if anything, I try to give people the benefit of the doubt that like there's some kind of reach out for help, as you mentioned, but it just might not be the most effective way, um, the most effective way to get it. But I will say that just stating a weakness is like very helpful um, versus trying to hide it. There's this beautiful parable uh, in ancient Greek mythology that there's this god Pan. And Pan lives just beyond the village boundary. And when people get lost and they run into Pan, he terrifies them. And they get so scared that they start to try to run away and they trip over sticks and stones and they, their fear kills them. They, they get scared to death. Whereas people that are brave and journey out of the village to go visit Pan intentionally, they come back wiser and more compassionate. And I feel like our own weaknesses, our own vulnerable spots, are like our own gods of pan. And I, I presume that's what this myth is to represent. And if we try to ignore them or run away from them or not go there, well, when they bubble up from under the surface, they're going to kill us. Whereas if we have the courage and the strength to go visit them, often with the help of close friends, community, sometimes a therapist, then we become more wise and more compassionate. Um, and you see this all the time. I, I wanted to tell like some very popular stories in the book, so I included Kevin Love, DeMar DeRozan, and Sarah Bareilles. So the first two NBA superstars, the third a Grammy-winning pop artist, um, who all had these moments of kind of like pushing away, not wanting to go there, being buttoned up because that's what their career demanded on them, and eventually getting crushed and then going to those places for Love, it was anxiety. For DeRozan, it was depression. For Borellis, it was depression. Doing work, not out in public, coming back a year later, and suddenly feeling so much more confident. Um, there's The last thing I'll say here is the poet Maria Rayner Rilke has this beautiful line where he says, I want to unfold, for where I am folded, there I am a lie. And how I interpret that is we fold over our vulnerabilities and where you're folded, you're a lie. Because if you don't know that part of yourself or you don't acknowledge that part of yourself, well, then you're lying. And as I mentioned earlier, you can only fake it for so long 
before those things unfold on their own. And if they catch you by surprise, it's a lot harder. Got to open yourself up. Yes. How did you go about finding different people to tell their stories for the book? You mentioned a few of them just now. I also know that you got Mike Posner, who is an artist that we both enjoy to talk with you about some of the things that he struggled with. I'm, I'm interested what those conversations were like, how you found these people and what it is that you were able to get from them. How I found them is, and I wasn't always right, but trying my best to discern who's had stories of getting caught up in heroic individualism and then getting like caught by it or surprised by it in a way that wasn't good. And instead of like just disappearing or continuing to do what they do, stepping back and then saying, like, how do I build a stronger foundation in my life? So I tried to identify people like that in various domains, um, particularly in the arts, athletics, and then business or more traditional workplaces. Um, and then how I actually, like the mechanics of getting them on the phone is I just send them, I mean, this is totally like pulling, you know, big time cards. I'd send them something I wrote on similar topics for the New York Times or outside. And I'm like, hey, I'm working on this book. I'd love to talk to you. And I got pretty fortunate that I, I was able to have a lot of interesting conversations. Um, another conversation that's in there that, or, or excuse me, story that's in there that might be of interest um, is Sarah True, mm -hmm. the two-time Olympian who was like, what, a couple seconds off the podium in 2012 and then cramped up in 2016, became like suicidally depressed and is now healthy, strong in becoming a clinical therapist. Um, so people like that, that like were climbing to the top and either got there in a good way or didn't get there, realized that there was no foundation underneath them and then had to build that foundation. In those conversations with notable people that you had from the book, as they were telling you their stories, was there any one in particular that surprised you or caught you off guard in some way? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, you know, I think that Tanahasi Coates, the writer, mm -hmm. who I didn't directly speak to, but did a lot of just research and based on public statements that he's made. Um, that was an interesting one. I had no idea that he was trying for so long to break out in writing and just coming up dead in a way that he himself doesn't attribute to like necessarily race or discrimination, but just like not getting breaks and not being good enough. And listening to him talk about the amount of practice and work and patience that it took for him to break through was pretty neat. Like I had no idea that he was on welfare and asking his in-laws for money to support his wife and kids because he couldn't get paid to write all the way up until basically like age 39, 40. And then he had one breakthrough magazine article, a cover story for The Atlantic, a book. And now he's one of the most influential public intellectuals. And you see Tanahasi Coates and you just assume like this guy's a star. But from age 22 to 38, no one knew who he was and he was just pounding the stone, but it wouldn't break for him. 
So that was surprising. I didn't know that about him. I actually, I, I started being interested in ta Coates because of other topics in the book, and I had no idea that his story was going to fit into the section on like how to practice patience, but that's where he ended up. As a result of some of those conversations that you had, did you have to change anything about the book or explore things a little bit deeper or in a different way? Oh, sure. I mean, that's just being a good, like an honest writer and reporter. I think every conversation, no conversation goes exactly how you think. Um, Mike Posner, like, you know, what an interesting guy um, that just talk about like a non-dual personality. He's like this wise sage on the one hand. And on the other hand, like this playful kid from Detroit that wants to play pickup basketball. And I thought it was just going to be the wise sage. Um, but that's what makes Mike so great and authentic. He's both of those things. And, you know, he, it's a big part of his music is he's writing about like, you know, basically that we're all going to die and what that means and how to come to terms with it. And he's ready to admit that he still has to do pull-ups every day because he's vain about how his arms look. And I'm into that because like, you know, maybe more than anything working on this book, I learned that no one gets a green check or a red check. Everyone is shades in between. And anyone that says that I'm just a green check is every bit as bad as someone that says they're just a red check. Um, and I think that people who have done this kind of like introspection and really cultivated groundedness and worked on these principles, they do come to realize that like everyone's a mixed bag. Uh, you know, Walt Whitman, the poet, said it best, like we all contain multitudes. And I think this book in particular allowed me to see that in my reporting. Because peak performance, right? I'm talking about people that are crushing it. The passion paradox, I'm talking about people that like had obsessive passion and went in a really crappy direction and then immediately course corrected hard the other way. This book is like much more of like a wrestling match between kind of good, bad, what I should do, what I shouldn't do. Even things as like concrete as social media, like can be good, but can also be destructive. Last question to wrap this one up. The book is divided into two parts. Part one, you lay out your seven principles of grounded success. Part two is how to put those principles in to practice. I don't want to go through all seven of those principles individually right now because we've talked about them throughout the course of this conversation. But if you could leave the listeners with one piece of advice to help them water their roots, so to speak, what would it be? I can really only do just one. For those people who may look at these seven principles and aren't sure where to start because it feels too overwhelming to try and change all of these things at once. What would you advise? I think the first is start from the start, as my three-and-a-half-year-old says. So that's okay. Like, the, Don't not do something because it feels big and scary. Do that thing incrementally and accept where you are, which is like, hey, you know, all this stuff might be helpful to me, and I'm going to go very you know, methodically. And maybe I'll actually do this with a community of people, um, or at least share kind of my learnings with a community of people. And then the other thing, which is such an important quality, is to try to marry fierce self-discipline with fierce self-compassion. And we live in a world where things are so polarized in black and white. So you've got the like Jocko Willenek, you know, I don't know who else, 
Dave Asprey, like, pick yourself up by the bootstraps, wake up at 4 a.m., work, 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 you get to make everything happen camp. And then we've got the sing kumbaya, hold hands, nothing's your fault, everything is systemic camp. And neither of those camps are right or wrong. The truth is unequivocally both of those things matter. So there is a lot that's out of your control. And it is important to hold hands and sing kumbaya. And there are kinds of all structural issues that might put you in a certain station. And self-discipline does matter. And you do need to put in the work. And I think that so many people, and you can just go look at like a personal growth or business book or even sport book aisle, and you see like there's these two categories of books when the truth is like both of those qualities on their own are meaningless, but if you put them together and you can be really tough on yourself and also really kind to yourself, and if you can take responsibility while also realizing that structural issues and anyone's current station in life matter, well, then you give yourself a chance to actually make progress. Um, so I think if people check out the book and read it and start trying to practice these principles, is you do so, remember it's a practice, which means it's ongoing, and then hold self-discipline and self-compassion at the same time. Brad, I love having these conversations with you. Our time has run its course for this one, but the book is The Practice of Groundedness. It comes out on September 7th, and I can't thank you enough for coming back on the Morning Shakeout podcast. Thank you, Mario. I love getting the chats uh, to talk to you. Um, it's just neat to see how you continue to evolve as an interviewer. You're, uh, you're a pro's pro, so thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening in to the Morning Shakeout podcast. A big thank you to both Runderwear and Precision Hydration for sponsoring this episode of the show. Runderwear's mission is to eliminate the discomfort caused by ill-fitting underwear and to create seamless performance running underwear, base wear, bras, and socks that are supremely comfortable, moisture-wicking, and chafe-free. Take a look at runderwear.com. That's R-U-N-D-E-R-W-E-A-R.com and use the code TMS. Two zero. That's capital T, capital M, capital S. Two zero for twenty percent off your order at checkout now through September fifteenth. The folks at Precision Hydration are experts in helping you nail and customize your hydration strategy for training and racing. I've been a devotee to their products for the past four years, and my last few marathons wouldn't have gone as well without them. Go to precisionhydration.com and take their free online sweat test to get a personalized hydration strategy to test in training. And as a listener of the show, you can get 15% off your first order of electrolytes that match how you sweat by using the code TMS15, that's capital T, capital M, capital S, 15, when checking out. You can even book a free 20-minute video call with them to ask any questions that you have about hydration and fueling for your next event couple more things before we wrap up. I'd like to give a shout out as always to my longtime producer, John Summerford, who makes every episode of the podcast sound clear and amazing. Also, thank you to Jeffrey Stern for running the AM Shakeout social media accounts and Chris Douglas for handling sponsorship sales. 
Last thing, if you are digging this podcast, I think you'll love my newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout, and you can subscribe to it at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. Every Tuesday morning, you'll get my take on what's happening in the world of running, along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to. It's a quick read, five, 10 minutes tops, but it will give you plenty to think about throughout the rest of the week. Again, you can sign up to receive it at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. Okay, that's it. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. <laughs>